Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Hey, welcome to Central for kickoff weekend. So glad that you tuned in. And honestly, I thought maybe it would just be my mom viewing this online experience. I mean, last week we did talk about God's wrath. We did talk about sexual sin. And the fact that you showed up today just means a whole lot to me. So so welcome to Central. Glad that you're here as we continue our study through the book of Romans. Uh, this week we land in chapter two. So if you're fairly new with us, uh, you, you jumped in at the right time. You're on the front end of our study through this amazing book uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. We know it as the book of Romans in our Bible. And as Paul, he started off, he gave us an introduction. Here's the purpose that he's writing. But then the, the real purpose behind Romans is to give an understanding of the gospel, the good news. The gospel is the good news, the best news we've ever heard. But Paul knows in order for us to really appreciate the good news, then we also need to understand the bad news. And so last week and for the next three weeks, we'll really be talking about about the bad news regarding the good news of the gospel. And so in, in beginning in chapter one, about halfway through, Paul's kind of laying out this black cloth, talking about God's wrath and how all of us, every single individual watching this, every single human being alive today is is under is worthy of God's wrath. That's the, that's the bad news. And Paul's building this case until uh, midway through chapter three, he's going to present the gospel to us. So he lays this black backdrop, then he, he shines, he allows the, the gospel, the good news, the brilliance, the beauty of it to really shine, shine forth. And so for the first few chapters here in Romans, Paul is laying out the bad news and, and talking about how really everyone in creation, every human being is worthy of, of God's wrath. And so just for clarification, maybe a little bit of a recap from last week, when we talk about God's wrath, uh, it's important for us to understand that God's wrath is just as much an attribute of who he is as much as his love, as much as his kindness, as much as his mercy, his, his patience. Uh, God's wrath is, is a part of, of who he is. And it's important for us to, to understand that. It's important for us to, to understand that the opposite of wrath is not love, but the opposite of wrath is neutrality. The opposite of wrath is a indifference. It's important for us to understand that when it comes to God, he is not indifferent or neutral when it comes to sin, when it comes to evil. When, when God exercises wrath, he, he does so towards evil, and it reminds us that God is totally hostile towards evil. He refuses to condone it. He refuses to overlook it. When it comes to, to God's, God, God's dealing with evil, he, he, he doesn't just, just come to terms with it. He always judges evil. We could, we could define God's wrath in this way. Uh, God's wrath is his active opposition towards evil. His wrath, his wrath isn't just towards evil in general, but as we, we saw last week in Romans chapter one, uh, verse 18, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all, all godlessness and wickedness of 
of men. So not just in general, but, but on, on men who suppress the truth. They don't, they don't embrace the truth. Instead, they, they suppress the truth. So they press it down and say, hey, truth, you don't have any authority over my life. And so they suppress the truth by their, their wickedness. And so uh, again, Paul is laying out the bad news about the good news in Romans 1 through 3, and Paul's building this case against humanity, almost like a prosecuting attorney trying to create this clear, vivid picture of our desperate need for a Savior. And so he does so by, by addressing four different sections of, of humanity. First, he, as we talked about last week, the depraved uh, Gentile society. Uh, this week, he's going to address the moralists. These are the people that say, well, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a good person. He's going to address them. Next week, uh, the self-confident Jewish person. So the person that says, yeah, but I'm a child of Abraham. Yeah, but I'm, 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 I'm from Israel. Like I'm, I'm part of the chosen. Uh, God could never judge me. Uh, and then fourth, he's going to address the entire human race all the way up to Romans 3 in verse 20, and then he moves into the radical, the, the, the amazing, the, the best news humanity's ever heard as he presents the gospel. So today we're going to look at the second group, the moralist, and Paul's going to give us four principles on how God will judge the moralist, the individual that says, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, pretty, a pretty good person. So four means, if you're taking notes, this is where they begin Four means for God to judge the moral person. Uh, the first, God will judge them based on knowledge. God will judge them based on knowledge. Uh, last week, uh, Paul started off with this word that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. Uh, this week, he starts off with this reminder for the audience that, that we're not actually part of the solution, but rather we're actually a part of the problem. Super encouraging. Thank you, Paul, for that that reminder that we are not part of the solution, but we're actually part of the problem. And here's the deal. We have this universal, there's something that's, that's universally true of every human being, and that is that we all want to be right. We, we all have this internal instinct, this, this longing for, for righteousness or to be, to be right. And, and, and how are we part of the problem and how are we not a part of the solution? We're part of the problem because it's easy for me, it's easy for you to point out all the faults in everyone else around us, to say, this is wrong, you're doing that wrong, you're doing this wrong. All the while we are blinded, we ignore the faults that we currently carry. And, and, and so Paul's first argument is that the moralists will be judged based on their knowledge of right and wrong and how they responded to that. Hey, here it is, Romans chapter two, verse one. Uh, Paul begins by saying, you, therefore, have no excuse. And so every time we see this word, therefore, in the Bible, what do we do? Well, we got to go back and see what it's there for. And so if we rewind the tape back to Romans chapter 1, uh, uh, Paul begins kind of making his case in Romans 1 verse 20, saying that, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power his, and divine nature, they, they have been clearly seen. Like this is, there's no mystery here. It's clearly seen. It's evident. Being understood by what has been made so men are without excuse. When we see the creation, it points to a creator. And as we have an understanding that, that we are not created by, by, by accident, but, but we're created on purpose, then it begs us to go to the creator and say, God, what's my purpose? Like, what, who are you? How do I interact with you? And, and how do I know you? And what do you have for me? And Paul says, 
all that reveals that, that men are, are without excuse because God has made it plain through his creation. Now back to Romans 2 verse 1. He says, you, therefore, so in light of that, in light of everything he just talked about in chapter 1, you, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. So here's what the moralist says. The moralist says, they look around the, 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 the world around them. They look at people in their life and they say, say you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're, you're doing it wrong. They, Actually, I'm a good person because I don't do that. But all the while they ignore everything that, that's happening in their own heart, in their own life. And here's Paul's argument. He's saying, if you're able to cast judgment on someone else, it indicates a level of, 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 of knowledge. It, it actually indicates a level of expertise, of mastery of some point of the law. So if you're able to cast judgment on someone else, it indicates that you have an understanding and a firm grasp of what's right and what's wrong. Therefore, if you understand what's, what's right and you also understand what's evil, then you're accountable to that understanding of right and wrong that you currently possess. And so the, the moralist says, yeah, I'm a good person, but I think I'll go, th I'll go free. But, but the fact that they acknowledge that, Paul says is condemning them. They condemn themselves because they say, I do know right and wrong, but I just choose to point out the wrong in you while ignoring the wrong in me. Are you with me? And so he says, at whatever point you, you cast judgment on someone else, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. And so what are some of those same things that Paul's talking about? Well, we could talk about a whole lot of things. I mean, in chapter one, we, he talked about homosexuality, he talked about same-sex attraction. And for a lot of people, we can be quick to point out, hey, that's wrong. But all the while, are there sexual issues, sin issues in our life? Are, are we living a sexually pure life? Paul's saying that's part of the problem. You're quick to point out in others, but, but how are you doing in that area? He, he would give us a list in Romans chapter 1, 29 through 31. He says, he says they, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, with, with evil, with greed and depravity. They, they're full of envy. They're murderers, uh, full of strife, deceit, and malice. They're, they're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now, here's the question. We can point this out in other people's life, but are, at any point, are we guilty of the same thing? Uh, no one likes it when people gossip about you, for example. That, that's super hurtful. When people talk about you behind your back in not a pleasant way, right? That, that hurts. But here's the question. Have you ever gossiped about somebody? So we can be quick to point out the issue of someone gossiping to them, but then do we do the same thing? And so Paul's saying, if you discover, if you, you're able to, to distinguish that these things are bad and other things are good, but then do you do the same thing? And if so, you're guilty. So Paul says that God will judge based on, on knowledge. Uh, yeah, back to Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, now, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. In other words, uh, God's judgment is not made up. It's not arbitrary. It's, it's based on a firm foundation. It's based on truth, that, that God is a just 
judge. Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? This is an interesting word, do, do you think? Uh, the Greek word there is logizomai. Uh, we get our English word logic from it. And so Paul's like, hey, let's reason this out. Let's just think logically about this. So you cast judgment on someone else, but then you do the same thing. Like logically, do you think that you'll escape judgment from that? And the answer is obviously no. So, so he's saying, since you've become an expert in morality, you're able to point out that you're qualified to, to call out character issues in other people, have you ever slipped? Have you ever known what was good and didn't do it? If so, that's sin. And Paul says that God will judge based on that knowledge of sin in our in our own lives. Second thing he says that he'll judge the moralist by is that God will judge based on the heart. God will judge based on the heart. Verse four, or, or do you show contempt? That word contempt uh, means to think of something as having no value. To show contempt is to, to despise something. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Now, now Paul lists a few words here. He says God's kindness. Now, God's kindness, it's the number one attribute of God throughout the entire Bible, that God is incurably kind, that God is incurably tenderhearted towards you, towards humanity. God, his loving kindness, the Hebrew where there's his hesed, it's his, it's his loving kindness, it's his, his, his great mercy, it's an amazing, amazing attribute of God. He doesn't treat us like our sins deserve, it's his, his kindness. He, then he talks about tolerance, and this is actually an, a little bit of an unfortunate translation. The ESV uh, translates this forbearance. Uh, it literally means like a truce. And so in this sense, uh, God has called a truce against humanity, with humanity. So while he could judge, he could treat you like your sins deserves, he's called a temporary truce to, to lead us towards repentance, Paul says. It's interesting, whenever you think about, about a truce, uh, in, in Genesis chapter eight, uh, or sorry, chapter nine, is right after the flood, and, and God gives humanity a sign that he will never destroy the earth the entire earth again with, with water. And so he says, hey, here's my promise. I'm gonna hang my promise in the sky, a rainbow. That, that word rainbow, it literally means like a bow and arrow, like an archery term. It's literally God hanging up his bow saying, I'm not gonna display wrath in that way. I, I'm going to call a temporary truce with humanity and give time for, for humanity to respond to me. And, and then patience. Aren't you thankful for God's patience? Aren't you thankful he doesn't treat us like our, our sins deserve as Psalms 103 says, but he's incredibly patient with us. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, saying if, if we don't come to this place where we recognize, man, I'm jacked up. God, I need your help. I'm doing things my own way. God, I want to do them your way. That's repentance. And what Paul is saying, if we don't come to this place of repentance, then we show contempt. We treat God's kindness. We treat God's truce. We treat God's patience as insignificant, as worthless, as unimportant. Paul's saying, saying, don't do that. God's response towards you requires a response from you. That's what Paul's saying. Anything less than that would be showing 
contempt. No one's neutral. We're either growing closer to God or we're moving further away from God. And if you're not responding towards God's goodness in your life, look at what Paul says is happening in your life right now. Romans 2.5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. Now, now this word stubbornness is an interesting word in, in Greek. In the Greek, it's, it's uh, sclerosis. It's uh, it, where we get our, our English word um, sclerosis. And so maybe you've heard of someone who has articular sclerosis. It's a, it's a hardening of, of arteries. And so what Paul's saying here, like, like because of your, your hardening of your, your heart, and because of your, your unrepentant heart, he's saying like, like one way we harden our heart, we talked about this this summer in our, our series Led by Fire with, with Pharaoh. It talks about how Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, how did Pharaoh harden his heart? How did he show stubbornness? Well, he clearly knew what God wanted him to do, let my people go, and he clearly did the opposite. He increased their slave labor. He continued to be harsh towards God's people in Israel. And it hardened, as a result, it hardened his heart. And so what Paul's saying, because you continue to harden your heart, it's not that you don't know right and wrong. You just choose to do what's wrong. It's not that you don't know that there's a creator. You just choose not to respond to him. In doing so, you, you harden your heart. So because your hardness and your unrepentant heart, again, that's, that's not turning. You continue to do your own thing, not turning back to God. And so, so Paul says, God will judge you based on your heart. Because your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The person who knows what God wants to do, the person who who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person who knows the the damning effects of sin, the, the travesty of sin, if a person continues to do their own thing, to live their own life on their own terms, not repenting and turning to God, that person is storing up wrath against themselves on the day of God's wrath. That's what Paul's saying here. So God will judge based on knowledge. God will judge based on your heart. Uh, God will judge based on your deeds. Uh, God will judge based on deeds. And before we talk about our deeds, I think it's important for us to, to maybe lay a little bit of a backdrop here because this could be a little bit confusing. In Romans chapter uh, 2, verse 6 through 10, Paul's talking about wrath, talking about judgment. He's not talking about salvation. And so, so just to be very clear, there's no, no, no good things we can do to earn our salvation. Uh, but whenever it comes to judgment, people will be judged based on what they have done. Again, no amount of good deeds can balance the scales. If we sinned against God, then our sin must be dealt with. It's not about earning our, our salvation. This is really the foundation of Christianity. This is really a, a fundamental. This is 101. This is the bedrock of Christianity, that we're not saved by anything we do. We're not saved by works, but we're saved by grace and by grace alone. Here it is in, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul says this. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved. How are we saved? By grace, through faith. This is not from yourselves. Like, you didn't do anything to earn it. It's a gift of God, not by works. Like, Paul's very clear on this. this you can't earn it. So that no one may boast. Because if, if I could do anything that would, would, would draw God's favor towards me, that would earn my salvation, then I could be super proud and say, wow, look what I've done. 
But salvation has nothing to do with what I've done and everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. It's a gift of God, not by works. So we're saved by grace through faith. But the person who rejects God's gift of salvation, Paul tells us that person will be judged based on what they've done. Romans 2.6 says, God will give each person according to what he has done. He will judge based on their deeds. This is reiterated in Revelation where John gets this vision of heaven, vision of end times. He, he has this vision, uh, this experience, and he documents it in this book of, of Revelation, and he talks about what will take place at the final judgment. And we read this in Revelation 20, verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. This is the uncreation of the world. In, in a moment, God spoke and called all things into creation. The galaxies, the stars, the sun, the moon, uh, the, the earth, and, and, and sea creatures, and animals that walk along the ground, like dogs and humans. It's awesome. In a moment, with the breath of his mouth. Colossians says that he sustains everything by the power of his word. Now at the end time, this is the uncreation. Earth and sky fled from his presence. It's a dismantling of, of the universe. And, and later on in Revelation, it says he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth in perfect condition. And how exciting is that? Can't wait to, to see it and be a part of it. He says, so earth and sky fled from his presence. I, I saw the dead, great and small. That's important. Uh, so, so it's not like people who had a bunch of money, they get a leg up whenever they stand before God. It's not like the poor because they were poor and, and didn't have anything on earth that God's going to be like, oh, you know what? skip you like you're, you're fine you had a rough life we'll, we'll take care of you now no it's all the same I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were open that's an important term it's it's literally this ledger it's this documentation of every deed you've ever done for every human being there's a ledger Every time that we disobeyed our mom and dad, we dishonored our mom and dad, there's a, a document, a date. Here's what happened. Here's what you said. Here's, here's what went down. Every time you lied, there's a ledger. Every time you've, you, Jesus said this, if you, if you think this is just uh, in Revelation, no, Jesus affirmed this. He says, on the day of judgment, man will give an account for every idle word they've spoken every word that you said that was out of bounds, every lie, every, every shaded truth, like it's a documentation with a ledger. It's a ledger, a case against you, a file against you. For some of you, that wraps around the world like several times. For some of you, it wraps around the earth one time, but that's still like 25,000 miles of documentation against you that would be there to condemn you and therefore, on the day of judgment, no one will say, well, yeah, wait, this isn't fair. No, 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 no. The evidence will be overwhelming. The books will be open. Another book was open, he says, which is the book of life. You say, well, what's that? For, for every man, woman, boy, or girl who puts their faith in Jesus, what takes place on the cross is that, that God took your ledger, your sin, your, 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 your guilt, your shame, and he placed it on Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus was treated as your sin deserves. He paid the debt for your sin. And so, so now your court case 
expunged, your, your case file erased, the ledger brought to zero. Like that's what justification means. It's literally a, an accounting term. It means, means it's been reconciled. You've been reconciled to God. Your account balance brought to zero, forgiven. And so for those whose names are written in the book of life, that's those who've accepted Jesus, but those who rejected him says this, the dead were judged according to what they had done. Again, their deeds, as was recorded in the book. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Again, there's going to be no question who's innocent, who's guilty. Then, the, then death, Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is not talking about annihilation. This is talking about the second death. This is talking about eternal punishment for the non-believer. If a person does not put their faith in Jesus, they will be judged according to what they have done. Now back to Romans Uh, Verse 7 begins to make a contrast. He begins to make a contrast between people who have put their faith in Jesus and how they they respond to life. And then he's going to make a contrast to unbelievers and how they respond to life. Verse 7 says, says, Those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, again, this isn't talking about how People can earn their salvation. He's just talking about the disposition of a follower of Jesus. Here's what they, their focus is on. Here's what they're, they're consumed with. They're consumed with the glory of God. Their life is all about how do I glorify God? How do I make God, God big? How do, I, how do I give him the honor due to his name? How do I, how do I worship him? How do I, I point a, a watching world to him? How do I glorify God? They're consumed with it. They're consumed with the glory of God. It's a persistent thing on their mind. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and verse 31, he says, his, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. The little things, the big things, our life is focused on how do we glorify God? That's the believer's mindset. Second mindset they have is how do, they, how do I honor him? How do I, after all he's done, God, how do I just honor you? They, they realize that it's no longer about themselves. It's no longer about, about, about my personal honor. But now I realize, man, I, I'm a representative of God. I'm an ambassador. I, I'm a, a representative here on earth of my king. And how do I give honor to him by the way I conduct my life, by the way I, I use my words, by, by my actions, my attitude towards people? How do, I, how do I glorify him? How do I honor him? Here's the focus of the believer. The believer is focused on immortality. They realize that, hey, I'm going to live forever. Like this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. The ultimate mindset of the follower of Jesus is that that I'm a citizen of heaven and I cannot wait to get there. So I'm conducting my affairs. I'm conducting my finance. I'm conducting my schedule. I'm conducting my activities in light of eternity. I'm storing up for myself treasure in heaven because I know, I know eternal life is real. To that, can I just speak to the Christians watching this for just a moment? Let's be very careful with how we lead our lives. If we're not careful, we'll be, be great connoisseurs of restaurants, Netflix series, win every fantasy football league we ever enter, 
and ignore spiritual realities of spiritual warfare in our life. We can become so consumed with right here, right now, that, that we get numb to the greater realities. And Paul's saying, man, for followers of Jesus, here's what they're about. Here's what their mindset is. Here's what their focus is on. Heaven's real. God's wrath is real. And for some of us, we just need to wake up to that reality again. Be reminded of that. Get, get a fresh conviction around that and live from a posture that's about God's glory, about God's honor, about, about eternal, eternal life. Get a conviction again that, that my life's here to point people back to Jesus. And I just ask, is your passion, is your, are you consumed with Christ about his glory, his honor? And if you're not, then I would just suggest that you've settled for a brand of Christianity that is far less than what the Bible talks about. Verse 8, Paul is contrasting believers' pursuits. Now he talks about unbelievers. Verse 8 says, but those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now the moralist is... Even though he's a moral person, she's a moral person, they're still self-seeking. Like, it's still all about them. They do a lot of good, but they do good because it makes them feel better. But really, life is all about themselves, what they want, when they want, how they want. There's no thought of what does God want, what's the what's a bigger picture here. And there's a progression, so they're self-seeking, which leads them to the re reject truth. And so they might, might agree to go along with some God stuff, but until God asks them to do some difficult things. And then whenever it comes to embracing truth, even when they don't want to, they're quick to reject it. Why? Because ultimately they're self-seeking. It's still all about them. And so they reject truth. And once you reject truth, now you're the ultimate authority in your life. There is no authority above you. Then you just follow evil. And for those, there will be wrath and anger. Next verse, Romans 2, verse 9 through 10 says this, there will be trouble, that's, that's affliction, that's great anguish and distress. Literally, the, if you look up that word, it means a narrow place. It's almost think of like you're, you're locked in a box, like it's almost like solitary confinement. It's this miserable, claustrophobic feeling. It's being squeezed, it's being pressured, there'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Fourth criteria that Paul says he's going to judge the moralist by. Fourth is that God will judge based on impartiality. God will judge impartially. In other words, God does not show favoritism. That's literally what Paul says next in Romans 2 and verse 11. He says, God, for God does not show favoritism. In other words, just because someone's Jewish or someone's a Gentile, because someone was born in Israel or someone was born in San Jose, like he's not going to treat, he's going to judge everyone equally. He's not going to show favoritism. God's not going to say, say, wow, you were a Chiefs fan while you were on earth and that's my favorite team. Although that would be true, I think. Uh, but because you're a Raiders fan, I'm going to judge you more strictly. Like uh, God's just not going to do that. I would probably do that. God's not going to do that. So what we're going to see here is that, that God doesn't show favoritism to those who, who know God's law or have, have special revelation from God. 
He doesn't show favor towards them versus people who, who don't have the law and only have general revelation of who God is. We talked about general revelation and special revelation last week. And, and here he's drawing a distinction again, saying he's going to treat everyone fairly, whether you have God's word in your hand and on your phone, or whether you live in the bush and you've never heard the Bible, you've never read the Bible, you don't have access to internet. He's going to judge everyone equally. Here's the first group. Uh, first group, he says, talks about those who, who know the law. These are people who have special revelation. Uh, verse 12 through 13, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law that are declared righteous. This is pretty self-explanatory, but Paul's basically making a distinction saying, hey, just because you know what's good, if you don't do it, it's worthless. And so if you know the law, you know what the, the law requires. If you know God's word and you say, I know God's word says this, and we can be quick to say, you need to do this. Here's the problem with our society. Here's what you need to do. I know what God's word says, but then if we don't do it, he's saying that's that's worthless. And you're actually going to be held to that same standard. You're going to be held accountable, be judged by the law is what he says. And so inevitably, whenever we talk about this, uh, 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 people who give some thought to this will, will typically ask, well, what about like the age of accountability? Like, like so if we, I'm raising my child in my home and we, we teach him about the things of God, but but what age are they accountable to that? What, what age would they be held accountable to that and judged ultimately by, by, by the law? And I would just suggest that it's not so much about an age of accountability as I would think of it more this way. Think of it like a condition of accountability. Not an age of accountability where this is locked in. Everyone at eight years old, they're now accountable. No, no, I think more of a condition of accountability. So someone who's five, who's very intellectually smart and, and just develops a little bit quicker than, than peers around them, they could, be, they could have an understanding of right and wrong. They could understand God's grace and forgiveness at an early age, and therefore they're accountable to that. Uh, but there are others who, because of their condition, they could be grown adults, and their mental faculty, faculties don't, don't allow them to grasp an understanding of right and wrong, to grasp an understanding of, of God's radical grace. Even if they hear the message, even if they know they've read the Bible, they just don't have the capacity to, to grasp it and digest it. Uh, furthermore, I would suggest some people would ask, well, what about newborns? Uh, what about, you know, some churches say, well, you have to have your child baptized as an infant uh, if, or else if they die, then they're like going to go to hell. I would just suggest to you it's, it's a condition, again, of accountability. They don't have a, a, the faculties to understand right and wrong. They don't have the faculties to understand God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So I think God takes that into account. And I think infants that die are with Jesus in heaven because of God's great mercy. The Bible speaks to this a little bit with King David. King David, um, long story short, he had a, a newborn child that died in and, an and infant state. And, and David was, was praying for his child. He was fasting, saying, God, save my son. And the child dies. And David makes these words, he says these words, he says, he says my son will not return to me, but one day I'll go to him. In other words, David knew his son would never come back alive here on earth, but one day he'd be reunited with his son forever in heaven because our God is that good and our God is that merciful. 
Also, whenever we talk about God's wrath, inevitably it comes up with what about people who, who don't have access to the Bible? What about people who live in the tribes of Africa and they, they don't have internet access? And, and, and oftentimes it's po- postured as like, I found a loophole in God's judgment. Like, I don't think God is just if he's going to send people to hell who never had, like, as, if, as if the individual making that statement was more of a just judge than the creator of the universe, which is a little bit, little bit silly, but, but Paul's going to address that. Paul's going to talk about that next. And so the next group, uh, he says, for those, talks about those who have never heard the truth of God's word or those who do not have have the law, as Paul puts it. So Romans 2, verse 12, the first part of that again says, all who sin apart from the law, so in other words, they don't have the law, they will perish apart from the law. We say, well, how does that work? How how are they going to perish apart from the law? What will they be held accountable to? If they don't have the law that clearly lays out, this is right, this is wrong, how will they be judged? And so Paul gives three criteria for judging Uh, such people, how God will judge them. First, he talks about people being accountable because of creation. Again, we read this earlier, but Romans 1.19 says, basically, God has made it plain. He's made it plain to them. The creation makes it plain to them. It says, hey, in light of creation, it's, it's clearly seen. It's made evident so that men are without excuse. Creation points to the truth of who God is. And they'll be held accountable to how they responded to that general revelation of God's creation. Second, people will be accountable because of their own conduct, because of their own conduct. The next verse, verse 14 says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. So even people who don't have knowledge of God's word, who don't have knowledge of the law, don't have knowledge of of God's expectations for humanity, they do by nature good things. They, 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 they respond in such a way that they say, I understand what's right. I understand what's wrong. There's something inside of all of us that says, it's wrong for me to kill another human being. There's something inside of us that says, it's wrong for me to lie. And so, so what Paul's saying here, based on their own conduct, how they responded to that understanding of right and wrong will be a basis for their judgment. Third, people are accountable because of their conscience because of their, their conscience. Romans 2.15 says this, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing them, even defending them. So within all of humanity, every human has a conscience, has an understanding, has this mental faculty. Uh, The previous verse, Paul said, he's written his law on our hearts. In other words, we have an understanding of right and wrong. God has, has wired that into us. That distinguishes us from animals. That distinguishes us from other created beings, that within the human being, he's created us with a conscience, a conscience that, that confirms us doing things that are right or accuses us when we do things that are wrong. That's what he's talking about. So our conscience bears witness, their thoughts now accusing them. So whenever you do something wrong, you have a conscience that says, wait, that's not right. You're, you're not behaving according to your design. You, you weren't wired to do that activity. And so it accuses you, trying to guide you away from that, that wrong activity, that wrong interaction. But we also have a conscience that now defends them. And so whenever we do things that are right, it's saying, yeah, that was right. You know, I, I am a pretty good person. I guess I, guess I do good, good things. I guess, I guess I do have some things figured out. 
And that's our conscience at work. Now, I would say this, especially to Christians, uh, we can have an oversensitive conscience to where our conscience is, is a little bit out of, out of whack, to where we can find sin at every turn, at every corner, and that can be equally damaging. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about how God will judge humanity who does not have God's law or does not have God's word. They'll be held accountable to their understanding of right and wrong, and God has, has gifted that inside every human being. Verse 16 says that will take place. So when will, when will all this take place? Last week we talked about God's passive wrath. Initially in verse 18 of chapter one, Paul says God's wrath is being revealed from heaven, like present tense, it's being revealed. And that's taking place in our day right here, right now in, a, in God's passive wrath. He's giving, giving people what they want. You just wanna do that? Okay, that's fine. It leads to people self-destructing. But there's coming a day of active wrath. And Paul points it out here. He says, this will take place on the day. So like in a moment, God will render a verdict and wrath will be delivered. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Again, Paul's bringing clarity to what is his gospels all about to this church in Rome. There's been rumors, murmuring, and Paul's just writing this letter to clear up. Here's what my gospel's all about. And Paul's gospel doesn't just include good news because we can't really understand the good news until we understand the bad news. And the bad news is that God has appointed once a man to die. And after that, there's judgment. That's what Hebrews 9.27 says. Hebrews 9.27, just as it's appointed, once a man to die, so in other words, my days are numbered, your days are numbered, and after we die, we face God. That comes, it comes judgment. It's true of every man, woman, boy, and girl. This will be whenever God's act of wrath is revealed. Back to verse 16. This will take place on the day. So, so no one else might know what's going on, but there's coming a day when God's going to judge it. He says, says even men's secrets, like, the, like some, some, some people think they're getting by with a whole lot of stuff, but, but, but Jesus sees it. He, he'll judge men's secrets. Uh, Psalmist said this in Psalm 139, says that he perceives our thoughts from afar. Like he knows what we're going to do before we do it. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 17 sin says this, but I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Like secret things, hidden things, things that are seen, people will be judged according to that, but also hidden things. God will be the just judge in that. And so you might say, well, hey, if God's like, if wrath's coming, like why didn't God just like do it? Like let's just get it over with. Like render a verdict. Where's God's wrath? And I would just say that God's wrath towards all of humanity is a sign of his great kindness, his great patience, wanting everyone to know him. That's what Peter says. Second Peter uh, 3, 9 says this, the Lord isn't slow about his promises. In other words, that day's coming. Don't, don't think he's slow. Like, like don't think he, he's, he's not. Here, here's what he is. He's, he's not slow in keeping his promises. Some people think, no, he, he's being patient for your sake, for your kid's sake for your neighbor's sake, for your coworker's sake, for people around you, for their sake. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, 
but want everyone to repent. It's not God's heart. It's the furthest thing. He, the Bible literally says, God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. Like that's part of the waiting. He's waiting for people to turn from him, to acknowledge him, to repent. In other words, stop living for themselves, start living for, for God that they might come alive in who he is. As we close, just want to give three, three closing thoughts uh, to a message like this. I think First off, obviously, this message highlights that God's wrath is terrible. God's wrath is terrible. Some, some people say, well, hey, you know what? God, you can send me to hell because I'll just be there with all my buddies and we're going to party it up. Like, that's an ignorant statement when it comes to hell. Jesus described hell as a place of outer darkness. In other words, it's you isolated, all alone, by yourself, being tormented forever. It will not be a party. Jesus, his wrath, God's wrath is, is terrible. The Bible uses descriptive words of hell like this. It describes hell as eternal punishment, everlasting destruction, a blazing furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like if you've ever gotten injured and like it's, oh, it just hurts so much. Or like you think about something you've done, it makes you cringe. It's constant cringe. It's constant gnashing of teeth. It's, it's weeping, a place of great sorrow and regret. Describes it as a place shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his glory forever. In other words, we have a common grace right now. People who love God, people who don't love God. We share a common grace in that he allows the sun to rise on the wicked and, and the good. He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There's coming a day when everything that is a part of this creation that is good, that is from God, will be removed. And in that sense, for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, this earth is as good as it gets. I'm just saying God's wrath is terrible. That's what the Bible teaches. Second, it's good for us to know God's kindness is incredible. His kindness is incredible. In other words, the Bible says that, 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 that he's, he's called a truce. He, he's, he's incredibly kind. He's incredibly patient. He's, why? Because he wants everyone to know him. He, he, he desires relationship with that. He's incredibly, his kindness is incredible. And then third, salvation is available. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed hour. Uh, such a, a gracious response from God requires a response from us to say, God, thank you. Thank you for all that you are. Thank, thank you for all you've done. God, the only proper response and understanding all you've done for me is to give my life to you. God's salvation is available. The Bible says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but you got to call. If you don't, if you're far away from God or, or maybe you just were close to God at one point and, and you find yourself distant from him, call out to him. Salvation is available. Now's the time. Salvation's available, but you need to respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your radical grace. God, we people, we realize that all of human race is worthy of your wrath because we've all sinned myself included, multiple times over. But Jesus, we are so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for Jesus that, that God, you paid my penalty, our penalty on the cross so that we can experience forgiveness, mercy, and grace. 
So God, I, I pray that that realization would come alive in our hearts and our minds, that we'd be in awe, jaw-dropping awe of what you've done for us. And God, for everyone on this online experience or listening to the podcast, God, that doesn't know you, God, I pray today would be the day they call out to you. The day would be the day that they turn from living for themselves and turn towards you and start living for you, for your glory, for your honor, and for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that's where you're at, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to commit your life to Jesus or, or recommit your life to God, I'd love for you to text me at 408-944-5402. 408-944-5402. However I can help you along your spiritual journey, it would be my joy and delight.